Joyful Advent, happy Advent, blessed Advent to all of you. Good to be together. Uh, Advent, as you know, we talked about uh, last Sunday, um, kind of can be summed up in uh, three ways. Advent, uh, for us, as it's historically been celebrated for 1,500 years, is uh, first remembering the Jewish people, the Israelite people, the Jewish people, looking forward to a, God, a person promised by God who he would send to rescue or save them. So first, remembering their centuries of looking forward to a person, a great helpful person, Messiah, Rescuer, Savior, who would come. Second, it's celebrating the birth of that actual Messiah, Jesus, 2,000 years ago, sort of getting in on that party 2,000 years later. And third, it is looking ahead, waiting for the advent or the arrival or the coming of Jesus again in glory and in victory to judge both the quick and the dead or the living and the dead and to establish once and for all his forever glorious kingdom. To remember, to celebrate, and to wait and watch in eager anticipation. That's Advent, one, two, three. Uh, and now let's begin with prayer. I'd like to uh, begin again this morning with the prayer that we used or prayed last uh, Sunday morning, uh, the words of Howard Thurman. Uh, we're going to put them up on the screen. If looking at those and reading them yourself is helpful in praying uh, yourself. So let's pray. God, may the sounds of Advent stir a longing in your people. Come again to set us free from the dullness of routine and the poverty of our imaginations. Break the patterns which bind us to small commitments and to the stale answers that we have given to questions of no importance. Let the Advent trumpet blow, let the walls of our defenses crumble, and make a place in our lives for the freshness of your love, well lived in the Spirit, and still given to all who know their need and dare receive it. These things we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. May it be so. Two weeks ago on the first Sunday of Advent, Jomo took us all the way back to the first verse of the first chapter of the first of the four Gospels, Matthew, to give us some background and context for how it must have been, what it was like uh, for Joseph, the Joseph, not of the Old Testament, uh, but the Joseph of Mary, the stepfather of Jesus, uh, what it must have been like for him in some way in a context in which having a male heir was so important to be in this awkward situation with Mary, to whom he was betrothed or pledged to be married. She's pregnant. They've got a little bit of an awkward situation. He's got all of this uh, Jewish background and context surrounding him and on, on both sides of him and kind of above him and how he goes through that with grace and dignity and love. Good stuff. This morning we're going to also go back to the first verse of the first chapter of the first gospel, Matthew, uh, and take a different look at some of the things that are there. Uh, listen closely, uh, beginning at Matthew 1.1, this is the word of God. Matthew writes, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac was the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amenadab, Amenadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. 
Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah. Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram. Jehoram the father of Isaiah, Isaiah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, Ammon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eliezer, Eliezer the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who is called the Messiah or the Christ. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah and a partridge in a pear tree. 99 bottles of beer on the wall. Ha. Uh, This is a photo of my grandmother on my dad's side. Yeah. I know my grandparents' names. They're all deceased now. My grandfathers both died when I was very young. My grandmothers lived until I was in college and then just after college. I know all four of their first names and their last names, but I really don't know much else about them. They're sort of back there. Of my eight great-grandparents, plus a couple more through step-families, I know the name of one, just one. Cassandra, yeah. I really have no knowledge of them. I'm detached from them only three generations away. On the other hand, Jesus' genealogy was really important to Matthew. Genealogies were really important in the first century and to Jewish people, and for centuries going back and forward for Jewish people. Matthew doesn't begin his gospel with the actual birth of Jesus. In fact, Matthew gives his readers none of the sorts of details that Luke gives about the actual, I mean the actual birth of Jesus. Mary, Joseph, Bethlehem, shepherds, ah, all of that stuff. Matthew, rather, because of some other things like this genealogy, leaves out what we might consider those important details for what he considered even more important. Matthew's genealogy of Jesus goes back thousands of years to the very beginning of God choosing his people. Matthew sets Jesus' birth in this centuries-long context in order to help us understand in a few ways his story, who he was, who they were, what he was about, his mission, God's purpose. Matthew's genealogy can be difficult to get through, like singing the 12 Days of Christmas, which we did here last evening. Uh, The reader is tempted to jump over. How many of you have jumped over the genealogies in the Old Testament when reading through the Old Testament? Flip that page, don't need that chapter, don't need that chapter, don't need that chapter. Keep going, 2 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles, there we go. 
We're tempted to jump over Matthew's genealogy and get to the really important stuff in Matthew's gospel, the really relevant action. But in doing so, we would miss out. We've got to go through all of the names if we want to understand the people and understand not only the people, but the story and the mission. Matthew's recounting the genealogy has a purpose or purposes, maybe several, that are often overlooked. For starters, Matthew doesn't begin his gospel once upon a time, like fairy tales, like legends, like the movie Star Wars, which always signal that things didn't really happen, but what follows is actually fiction. Stories, fables, myths, legends. But Jesus is real. He and his story are grounded in history and not fiction. Jesus really happened. Jesus was, Jesus was a historical figure. And so Matthew's got to ground Jesus in history, even though he only writes a couple of decades, several decades after Jesus' uh, crucifixion and resurrection. He still grounds Jesus in long and deep history which is helpful for us 2,000 years later. And Matthew is also fascinated by Jesus' human history and what Matthew has learned and knows about Jesus' human history, as well as, as we see throughout Matthew's gospel, Jesus' divine history and his being sent by God. And Matthew does some interesting things in presenting Jesus' human ancestry, most notably of which may be Matthew's inclusion, first of all, or we may notice first, of women which we'll talk over and talk through in a few minutes or as we go over the next few minutes. Among the women first was this woman named Tamar, whose story you may remember straight out of the Jerry Springer show. <laughs> it's also found in chapter 38 of Genesis. A Judah, who is the fourth son of Jacob, gets married. He has three sons, arranges for Tamar to be the wife of his oldest son, first son, a man who's unfortunately named Ur. I'd like to introduce you to my son, Ur. How does that go over? I don't know. Ur and Tamar get married. However, Ur dies childless, and so Judah says to his second son, you be the husband of Tamar. That's sort of how things worked back then. The hope was that through Judah's second son, Tamar would get pregnant and give birth to a son who would be Judah's heir, which is what it was all about. Have Judah's son uh, become, uh, get Uh, Tamar pregnant, he sort of operates in that culture as a substitute for Judah's first and oldest son. However, Judah's second son doesn't really want to be used in this way. He's not interested in Tamar. He doesn't really want to get married. He doesn't want to be the father of her children. So he sort of uh, refuses to participate in procreation. We'll keep it sort of rated G in that way for now. And so, uh, and then he dies. Uh, Sort of at God's involvement in that. God not pleased with him because he's not participating in the family system. And then after that, uh, Judas sits back and reevaluates. I've got three sons. Two have been taken down, presumably in some way by this woman, Tamar. She may be cursed. I'm not sure I want her to have my third son. The third son also isn't interested in getting married to Tamar. So that's not a possibility. Judas says to Tamar, go back to your parents. Just go. Go back to your parents. Return to where you came from. It's not going to work out for you and my family. She doesn't have a real choice. She returns to her parents, even though there's the third son still hanging around there. She goes back, but after a while realizes that she's destined for destitution in this situation. And so she thinks, she begins to wonder, how can I, 
how can I give birth? How can I have meaning? How can I have security? How can I fit into all of the world's way of operating back then? Judah's wife dies. She comes up with a scheme and says, I'll trick Judah into becoming my wife. She disguises herself, looks like a prostitute. Long story short, Judah's on a trip, engages with the prostitute. She gets pregnant. She hooks him into a kind of a trick. Later on, he realizes that she's tricked him, that he's the father of the baby within her, and he gives in and agrees to, well, he has no choice at that point. Give birth or be the father of his own grandchild in one sense, or his own child, thus nevertheless producing an heir. And the fruit of this very, very complicated, again, Jerry Springer union, ends up being one of the great, great, great grandfathers of Jesus. Hmm. And then there's Rahab, who really was a harlot, a woman of the night, a prostitute, who for whatever reason uh, she was, you can read about her story in the second chapter of Joshua. And though Rahab had some redeeming qualities, and later in the book of Hebrews is lifted up as an esteemed person of faith, and in the book of James is listed... uh, are named as a person of esteemed works or good deeds. Historically, she's a prostitute. And yet she's included in the genealogy of Jesus. And then there's Ruth, who is morally the least questionable of the four women, but she was a Moabitess, a descendant of the incestuous Lot, which you can read about in Genesis 19. And therefore, Ruth was also low on the social ladder, totem pole, spiritual register of her time, where there was more racial exclusion than there is today, especially in the people of God. Nevertheless, the Gentile Ruth becomes the literal great-grandmother of David, and so a distant great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus. The fourth woman in Matthew's genealogy, Matthew blushes to name directly, and so he circumspectly refers to her as the wife of Uriah. I don't know if you saw that, noticed that, indicating incidentally that she is not the lawful wife of David. We know her as Bathsheba, more a victim than an agent in the Old Testament's most famous scandalous seduction in 2 Samuel chapter 11. But Bathsheba is also a great, 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 great grandmother, Grammy, grandma of Jesus. Huh. So several truths about these women catch the attention of the reader. First, the fact that several, of the, several women are mentioned at all is noteworthy. Uh, usually the names of men suffice in biblical genealogies, and women's names are only added if and when they will ensure the purity of the line or enhance the dignity of the line and the ancestors in some way. Three of the four women do not seem to immediately serve either of these purposes. It's shocking to the readers of Matthew in the first century. To us, it's just a bunch of names. And this brings us to the second sort of surprise of Matthew's readers. All four women are not Jews. They are not Jews, at least in some sense. We've already noted that in the case of Ruth, she's a Moabitess, but a closer reading of the text shows that Tamar was actually a Canaanite, Rahab was a Jerokaiite, and Bathsheba, through marriage, was a Hittite, of course. 
And this leads us to the third and perhaps most important observation. All four women, if we put it delicately, are anomalous or irregular. Three of the four women are sexually or morally anomalous, with the exception being Ruth. Though if you know the story of Ruth, one might look at her as maybe overly aggressive (laughs) or assertive. I mean, she knows what she wants and she goes after it. And so one gets the impression that Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, has really worked and poured over his knowledge of the Old Testament until he could locate, it seems, the most questionable liaisons possible in order to insert them into his record so that in this way he can preach the gospel of Jesus through a genealogy. The scandal of the Gentiles and sinners in the first line section of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah gives Matthew his first extended chance, quietly, subversively, secretly almost, to preach what he will later illustrate through story and cross and resurrection and interaction and speeches and talks and stories and teaching about God's love, the God. From the beginning of the genealogy, from that first group of 14, the gospel is about mercy. It's about a second chance. It's about loving people who don't deserve to be loved, at least by the world's thinking. The four model matriarchs of Jesus' history, the four model matriarchs, who were fully available to Matthew, Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel, right? They're all just sort of out there and obvious in the Bible and in biblical stories. The wives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And those women were available to Matthew if Matthew wanted to just have some women included in his genealogy. But Matthew was after more than that. What Matthew wanted his readers in the world to see and to know and to understand was that there's a gospel deep inside under the layers that most of us see. And it was from eternity not just revealed at Jesus' birth, angels singing, message from angels, not just revealed along the way in Jesus' ministry. It's always been there. This is who God has always been. In the fourth century, Jerome, one of the most important of the early church fathers, maybe not heard about a lot, Jerome, He wrote, it should be noted that in the genealogy of the Savior, the mention of no holy women is included, but rather those whom Scripture blames, in order to show that he who came for sinners would efface the sins of all. Good news. The victimized Tamar, the converted Rahab, the used Bathsheba, and really, that's, that's the way we need to see her as a victim and as used. And the foreigner Ruth, the great 16th century monk and scholar and priest and theologian and author and church reformer Martin Luther, as might be expected, sees in these strange gospel characters God's desire desire to show how much love God has for sinners. It is, writes Luther, intended for the genealogy to say, oh, Christ is not the kind of person who is ashamed of sinners. In fact, he even puts them in his family tree. 
Then Luther gives this point a nice ethical twist. So if the Lord does that here, so ought we to despise no one but to put ourselves right in the middle of the fight for sinners and to help them, Luther wrote. Oh, how often do we sort of subconsciously think of the church and of Christians as good people. The world used to think that way, too. I don't know if you realize there was a shift that happened in the last 30, 40, 50 years. 50 years ago, everyone used to think that the good people are in the church. Now people think that the judgmental, critical, mean people are in the church and the good people are actually out there. Regardless. Fast forward all the way to the end of Matthew's genealogy, we have this unwed teenage mother, an unwed teenage mother who's the fifth mother of Jesus in Matthew's genealogy, who would have been despised by those around her were it not for the grace and dignity, as Jomo talked about two weeks ago, of her husband, Joseph. Imagine that. Imagine today. Imagine that more so then. Unwed teenage mother. Mother of Jesus. The first two words in the Greek manuscript of the Gospel of Matthew are Biblos Geneseos. The record of the genealogy, the record of the beginning. Which would suggest in Matthew's mind the deepest beginning in history is not the birth of the world, but the birth of the Savior of the world. Matthew's talking about a new beginning that's greater than the original beginning. Genesis, in the beginning is the way Genesis begins. Matthew begins, again, in the beginning. But a bigger, greater, different, better kind of beginning. Jesus later says in the fifth chapter of Luke's Gospel, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. In the 19th chapter of Luke's Gospel, Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus, he says, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Sinners lost, mission of God, mission toward us, mission toward them, love for all. Matthew's genealogy has an almost subversive yet undeniable message. Paul put it this way in his letter to the Galatians. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself in Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. Neither slave nor free, nor male nor female. For all of you are one in Christ. Despite your background, despite your history, despite the stains on your life. If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed. Oh, that genealogy. And heirs according to God's promise. And now for the sake of context, consider this. We live in a very, very individualistic culture since the Enlightenment uh, things have gone sort of totally individualism in our world and our thought and our worldview. Maybe the most individualistic culture the world has ever seen, known, or had. I am who I am according to what I've made of myself, what I've accomplished, who I become, who I will become. In contrast, Matthew's world was very, very different. Jesus' world was different. It was more communal. It was more family-oriented. They dealt and they lived in covenants. So I know my grandparents' names, and that's about it. Beyond them, I really have no knowledge of, well, almost no knowledge of my great-grandparents because our world and most of our thinking is their history. Who they were has little bearing on who I am. We all get a new fresh start at every generation. We're not connected. We're disconnected. 
But that wasn't the case in Jesus' time. In Jesus' time and for Matthew, a person's genealogy was their resume. How many of you have written a resume? Some of us have resumes. Some of you are circulating resumes right now. Absolutely. A person's genealogy in Jesus' time was their resume. In those times, it was one's family, one's pedigree, one's tribe, one's clan that constituted or informed who a person was. A genealogy was a way of saying to the world, this is who I am. This is who I am. I have a great, great, great grandfather, Reverend John Bennington Mahan. Photograph, yeah, old. Uh, lived to the age of 43, died in the 1850s, early 1850s, was involved in the Underground Railroad in Ohio, helping slaves at the risk of his own life and theirs get from the South to freedom in the North. If I was to put together my genealogy or resume, he would be in there. He would be in there. This is my DNA. I want that DNA. Conversely, we've got this guy. Yeah, only picture that's known to exist of Peter Conover Haynes II, of whom my stepfather was the fourth. He murdered his wife's lover in cold blood. You can read about it in an old copy, very old copy of the New York Times. He would not be included in my resume <laughs> if I wanted to put together a pedigree that was all about who I am. And it's interesting that in those days, people tinkered with their resumes just as people do today. We tend to leave out the less flattering parts of our track records that may not make us look good. We know that Herod the Great purged many names from his public genealogy because he didn't want anyone to know they were connected to him or he was connected to them. The purpose of a genealogical resume was to impress people with the quality and the respectability of one's roots. But Matthew seems to do almost the exact opposite. And he's, uh, he's working with some latitude here. He wants things in these 14 generation groups. He leaves out a number of people. The Jewish people reading first century his genealogy would have known that. That would have been obvious. They knew what he was doing. It was no secret. It was no mistake. They knew what he was doing. And they knew what he was doing by including these four and five women. And so as we move through Advent... As we reflect back on the genealogy of Jesus, we must remember that Jesus belongs in the church. The gospel is for the church. It belongs in the church, but it just as much belongs outside the church. And to those and for those, historically left out of the circle of love. I was reading through just a few pages of a book someone gave me uh, this week. It talked about and reflected back on the Christian country, the United States of America where all people are created equal and how over the history of all men being created equal it's been this slow 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 painful resisted journey of giving equality to all people bit by bit war by war bit by bit step by step 
The gospel's for the church, it belongs to the church, but it just as much belongs outside the church and to those and for those historically left out of the circle of love and the circle of acceptance. Those who, because of the stains in their lives, have been excluded from genealogies and family gatherings and family photos and family memories. Are you with me? If there had been any doubt before, we must be sure now the gospel is those who have previously been left off the invite list and left out of the room. The gospel of Jesus, salvation by grace through faith, is for the least and the last and the lost from the beginning of Matthew's gospel. I'm going to be, uh, close with these words from uh, Brennan Manning. Brennan Manning writes in a little book, again, a must-read book, called The Ragamuffin Gospel. You've got to read it, get it. It's easy. He writes, uh, Because salvation is by grace through faith, I believe that among the countless number of people standing in front of the throne and in f- front of the Lamb, which is a part of what we look forward to at Advent, I believe that among the countless number of people standing in front of the throne and in front of the Lamb, dressed in white robes and holding palms in their hands, Revelation 7, I shall see the prostitute from the Kit Kat Ranch in Carson City, Nevada, who tearfully told me that she could find no other employment to to support her two-year-old son. I shall see the woman who had an abortion and is haunted by guilt and remorse, but did the best that she could, faced with grueling alternatives. I shall see the businessman besieged with debt who sold his integrity in a series of desperate transactions. I shall see this insecure clergyman addicted to being liked who never challenged his people from the pulpit and longed for unconditional love. I shall see this sexually abused teen molested by his father and now selling his body on the street who as he falls asleep each night after his last trick whispers the name of the unknown God he learned about in Sunday school. I hope that your Advent, our Advent... And our Christmas are informed by Matthew's genealogy and the richness of the gospel therein. And that your life and your heart and your mind and my life and my heart and my mind and our families are transformed by the radical grace of God in Jesus and his genealogy. And that we will be or that we will become agents of his grace in our world in our graceless world, until his kingdom comes, and it is coming, and it will come. A kingdom of grace, a kingdom of love, a kingdom extended to the least expected and the least worthy, of which we are emissaries. May it be so. Let us pray. Again, God, may the sounds of Advent stir a longing in your people. Come again to set us free from the dullness of routine and the poverty of our imaginations. Break the patterns which bind us to small commitments and to the stale answers we've given to questions of no importance. Let your Advent trumpet blow and let the walls of our defenses crumble and make a place in our lives for the freshness of your love, well lived in the Spirit, and still given to all who know their need and who dare receive it.
May this be so. Truly, truly. Amen.